Thanks, John. Um, we have ostensibly three readings this morning. Um, if there, if you want a Bible, there's some Bibles at the back. They look like this. Um, feel free to go grab one. Um, and Kirsten is standing up there, and if you put your hand up, I'm sure she will bring one over for you. Um, if you have one in your hand, we are reading from Genesis chapter 15. We're also reading from Genesis chapter 17, and we'll be doing a passage in um, Matthew as well. So Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, Abram and said, To your descendants, I will give you this land, from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, to the land of the Ke uh, the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Uh, the second reading there is uh, we're skipping to chapter 17, still in Genesis. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am. God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be a father, be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. 
The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abram, Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or brought with money, bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant my covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money and every male in his household and circumcised them as God had told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day. And every male born in Abraham's household, including every male in Abraham's sorry, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. I promise the next reading is not as long, and it is from Matthew twenty six, verses twenty six to twenty nine. Matthew 26, 26 to 29. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which was poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it with, uh, when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Let's have a look at Genesis 15. We've been starting this series in, in Genesis, and last week Pete uh, talked about Genesis 14, uh, and the, the story, a big overview of the story of what had happened uh, up until that point. Uh, God has called Abraham and his family out from Ur of the Chaldeans, that area just north of, um, of Israel, modern-day Turkey, 
to leave that country and to go to a, pl- a new land that God had prepared for them. And along with that command to take all of your family, get up and leave, comes a promise. The promise is this, God will make an Abraham into a great nation with countless descendants. His family would be blessed and would be a blessing to the whole world. So we read of that in Genesis 12. And then it seems almost like the, the biblical author has had a memory lapse because he tells us about another covenant that has happened. And then in chapter 17, he talk, talks about the same covenant again. Fear not, it's not just that um, the, the author is wanting to repeat himself a lot, but He's just expanding on what he's, what he's uh, saying about this covenant. So in chapter 15, we read again of the covenant with Abram. Now, I think for us in the 21st century, we read covenant and you go, well, what's that? It's not particularly something that is, is overly common. Um, I have a friend who... Uh, they went. We're looking at buying a house here in the in the Kensington Banks area, just behind us. And it came. All of the the documentation for all of the houses started talking about. Uh, please see blah 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 covenant in blah 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 blah. And they're like, "What's this covenant doing? I'm I'm just buying a house. I'm not trying to buy a covenant." Um, and one of, one of our other friends helpfully said, "Oh, it's something to do with uh, that Xbox game Halo." Which, of course, makes even more sense, doesn't it? You know, you're buying a house and you're buying an Xbox. Do they throw them in free with houses these days? I'm not sure. But what it, what it um, points back to is this notion uh, which is int- introduced here in Genesis but also has existed uh, for many, many centuries uh, where a covenant is a legal arrangement. It's a legal agreement between two parties. So for for the Kensington Banks, most houses apparently have a covenant that you can't grow a tree more than two and a half metres tall. It's a legal arrangement between yourself as a house owner and the city council. Uh, Do not grow a tree more than two and a half metres tall for some reason, which is presumably lost to the depths of time. It's, It's a contract. It's an agreement between two parties. But I think sometimes when we read Covenant, we think far more about a set of rules. They're things you have to do, rules you have to follow. So a friend of, friend of mine in the States has, um, lives in a, um, an estate. Estates over there are different to the States here. Uh, a, a, uh, an area where they've all built at the same time. Um, and they have a covenant where your grass may not be more than three inches tall. And they, and they will come around with a ruler to make sure your grass is not more than three inches tall. And if it is, you get a fine. There are rules that must be followed in the front yard of your house to make sure that uh, it looks the same as everyone else's. There are covenants that need to be followed. And I think the only other time we really talk about it um, in the West is when we think about a wedding. So I'm going to point at, you, at these two guys over here, Joel and Adele. You're going to be the, 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 the example, the live example that we keep coming back to. These guys have just got engaged recently and are starting to plan their wedding. So a husband and wife make a formal promise to each other, and in legal terminology, that's called a covenant. It's a formal and legally binding agreement. 
But is that all that happens at a wedding? You know, you have you have, have the church laid out and there's all the decorations and the songs and, and the bride there in her beautiful white dress and the groom dressed up in, um, in a suit which is ill-fitting and he doesn't quite really know what to do with it. Sorry, Joel. <laughs> no, it's... It's not just about the rules and the, the legal um, sign on the dotted line here. It's primarily, in that case, it's primarily about a relationship. And even still with, with the, the, the trees in the banks and, and with the, your grass not being able to be more than this high, uh, it's about the relationship you have with your neighbours. It's not just about the rules, but it's about a relationship. And especially in a wedding... It's a promise to love. It's a promise to love one another. And so it's in that sense that covenant is used here in Genesis. It's the formal contract that sits as the foundation of an ongoing relationship between God and Abram. And it's certainly not the last of it, as we've seen. But at the beginning here, there is a whole bunch of big questions which we need to ask. A covenant relies on both parties being faithful to it. And there are usually penalties applied if you're not faithful to it. For example, you get fined $150 for having your grass too long. Just still astounds me. So what happens if one of the parties fails in that, in that promise? And especially here, how can Abram be sure that God will keep his covenant with him? Will this covenant that, that he's making in Genesis 15 and 17 be enough to ensure that uh, it will ensure God's plan to bless the entire world. Back, looking back to Genesis 12. And so to answer some of these questions, we're going to have a look at three different parts of the covenant. We're going to have a look at the blessings of the covenant, first of all, then some of the expectations of that covenant, and finally that bit uh, which is, comes as part of all covenants, the penalty uh, for breaking the covenant. So we'll have a look uh, at... The covenant blessings first. Genesis 15, 1 reads, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. So firstly, we read after this. We have to ask after what? What's caused Abraham to be afraid that he needs this reassurance? And so we see in the previous chapter, Abraham's nephew Lot gets captured uh, and Abram sends in his best men, his, his commandos, his SAS, on a rescue mission. There's four kings, 318 men. It doesn't go quite the way the kings assumed it would. Let's just say that. God works a miracle. They rescue Lot, his family, and all the possessions, and they make the enemies flee for their lives. 318 people. So why is Abram afraid then? He's just had this great military victory over the four kings around him, they're all fleeing for their lives, running for the hills. Surely he should be feeling pretty good about himself. Except Abraham's probably realized something. He's probably realized that these kings, these powerful men, while they're quaking and trembling in their boots or sandals at this point, they're still kings. They're powerful men. And they're probably pretty embarrassed about running away. This isn't a one-year-old or a five-year-old in a schoolyard. This is grown men. And they're men who would 
presumably like to exact their revenge on Abram. And so God appears to Abram again to give him some reassurance. He says, I am your shield, your great reward. God promises to be Abram's divine protector at this point. And then later on in in 17.1, God introduced himself to Abram again using the term El Shaddai, or God of the mountains, or God the Almighty. Shaddai literally means mountains, and in, the, in those days they didn't have dynamite and blasting caps and um, large drillers to go through mountains, so mountains were pretty formidable. So if you're describing uh, your God like a mountain, that's someone to be trusted in and, and also someone to be feared. God wants Abram to know that he is greater and far more powerful than any enemy king or army. There is no need to fear here because God the Almighty is with him. But God promises not only to be a shield, that defender, the the one that, um, that protects Abram, but also his reward. God is as generous as he is mighty. He's the source of every good thing the provider of every need and the fountain of every blessing. So if God is going to be the reward, what sort of reward should Abram expect? Is it, you know, just a small token of his gratitude? Well, no, God begins to go into that in detail in in the rest of chapter 15 and 17. Firstly, Abram objects to to, to God and says, well, you're supposed to be my shield and my reward. What use is that to me? I remain childless. There's no, I don't have any kids. The one who um, will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus, one of his servants. And so God enacts his first promise that God would give them descendants, that despite their old age and Sarah's barrenness, they would have a son. From their line would spring great nations. Effectively, he's saying that you'll be the parents of royalty. Now, I know, I know Pete's just had a baby, and um, it got me reflecting on some of the names that uh, babies get given these days. There, there is a phase that we go through. Every single time there's a royal baby uh, over, um, over in England, we, we get names such as Henry and George and William the names that embody what it means to be royal. And so, so to here, Abram, is, this is not just a name that embodies something that is far away, but is a promise of what is close, that God would give them descendants who would be lords of nations. Secondly, though, these are traveling people, um, there's that old song, On the Road Again. I long to be on the road again. I'm sh- pretty sure, actually, at this point, Abraham longs to be off the road again. He's been traveling down from Ur of the Chaldeans. He has no home. He's been living in tents for a while now. And so God promises that he would give them a land. They wouldn't forever roam the, the, the earth as nomads, but they would settle in their own land, a land that they would call home. But I think most of all, people, land, 
most of all, there's a promise to be a presence with, with them, that God would be with them. The relationship that Abraham has with God, of God coming before him, being able, and Abraham being able to, to pour out his troubles um, to God, would be extended to, all, to, extended to all of the descendants. They would always be his people, and God would always be their God. And so to reflect these promises, just as uh, in, in, a, in many um, weddings, in many marriages, there is a change of name to reflect the new family that is born, the new family that has come out of the, of the marriage. So to here, Abraham, Abraham and Sarah both change their names. They're both brought into a new family with God, and God gives them new names. Abraham, which means exalted father, is changed to Abraham, which means the father of many. And I'm presuming that, at least for a bunch of people here, there's a small song going through your head, which goes something like Abraham. uh, Abraham has many sons. Well, he also has lots of daughters as well, but we'll get to that later. Sarah, Sarai, on the other hand, is changed to Sarah, which means princess that theme of royalty coming through. And overall is repeated throughout that there will be a great blessing. In the first part of the covenant, God promises to protect and bless Abraham and his family forever. Abraham now, not just Abram. But it's not just the end of the covenant. Every covenant includes not just blessings, but expectations as well. And so we'll move on to having a look at the expectations of this new covenant. If you are following along in the Bible, we'll skip over to Genesis 17, even though there, there are expectations in Genesis 15, the ones that will make most males in the room squirm a lot. Um, we'll come back to those in a minute. But Genesis 17. Abraham's family was expected to keep a covenant. And that involves three things. Firstly, there is an expectation to walk before God faithfully. And in ancient times, to walk before someone is effectively to take on the role of a servant. You would walk before your master to make sure that there weren't any potholes that they were about to fall into. You would walk before their their chariot or their um, their bed that they were literally carried on to make sure that they wouldn't be shamed by falling down and and injuring themselves or injuring their pride more more realistically. It means giving obedience and loyalty to the one that you that is your ruler and this shows what kind of covenant the uh, the Bible was describing. In ancient times, it was really common for a minor lord, a minor person, to enter into covenant with a more powerful king. The king would provide protection and blessings, and in return, the lord would vow allegiance to a king. This is what is properly termed a suzerain-vassal treaty. And there, we have plenty of examples of these written on various stone tablets uh, from the era. God is a great king who will bestow blessings to Abram. And in return, Abram is expected to faithfully obey God's word, including the being renamed to Abraham. But normally with these, these treaties, there, there is one thing that people are interested in. It's external, visible, 
obedience. But God isn't just interested in that. He also has high expectations of of Abraham's internal life. Because the second expectation there is for Abraham to be blameless. Now, this isn't about just being perfect, but it's about being a person of integrity, about being someone who is able to be trusted for their external deeds and their internal attitudes to match up, to maintain a character that is above reproach. That sounds rather difficult. And thirdly, Abraham was to ensure that he and his descendants faithfully enacted the sign of the covenant. That sign that, as Tim was reading it, probably made everyone squirm. Just like a marriage covenant comes with a a certificate, a, a piece of paper signifying that you're married, so too that covenant needed a physical sign to make it valid. A very physical sign. That sign is the circumcision of every male member of the family. Feel free to cross your legs, guys. This is mandatory for Abraham, the removal of foreskin on all of the males in the family. But it's not just mandatory for those who are in the family, but it's mandatory for every male who joins them from another family. A while ago, I had a housemate who decided he wanted a radical change in his life. So at 34, he got circumcised. Our driveway in, down to our house had cobblestones. Let's just say the look on his face wasn't particularly pleasant. This is a serious part of the covenant, and the act of circumcision emphasizes how serious it is. Now, I'm sure everyone is asking, couldn't they have just done a certificate? You know, put a few little nice floral bits at the top and bottom and you know, insert name here, uh, insert other covenant members' name there and sign and date at the bottom. There's templates for this in Microsoft Publisher. No, this is far more important than just that. And one of the... There are several reasons for this, but one of them is that a permanent covenant requires a permanent sign. There's no going back from this. Circumcision can't be reversed. You cut something off, it doesn't grow back in this case. And secondly, circumcision is is a fairly common rite of initiation in the ancient world. This would have been fairly familiar practice to Abram. We don't notice in the text him objecting to, to it. And so it made sense that God would use this as a sign for inaugurating and bringing Abram's family into something new. And thirdly, circumcision is a very personal reminder, very personal reminder, that God's covenant would be passed down through the children born to the family of Abraham. Every child that is born would be circumcised. Each time a child is circumcised, there will be a reminder of the covenant of the promises from God to his people. So how is all this applicable to us? Yeah, no one... I'm not expecting that anyone will will go out and book circumcisions after this sermon. 
But I think it actually helps us to grapple with some of the common objections about covenants and about who God is. Despite uh, what the censuses say and what is commonly believed, most Australians still believe in a God or a higher being. But the problem that people have isn't necessarily whether there is a God or not, but it's what type of God there is. People love to believe in a God who gives them good things. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why reading a covenant as a set of rules is so attractive. You follow a set of, a set of rules and you get good things. It's kind of like a genie in a bottle. You keep the genie in the bottle relatively happy, you polish the bottle occasionally, and you get good things out of it. In the Christian West, this often looks like um, getting the lamp and rubbing it with a bit of prayer. And out pops God as the genie and you go, I would like a Ferrari. Or I would like to be healed from something. Or I would like to, my wishes to be granted. Everyone likes that kind of God. The God who is there for when times get rough, when, when I can't do it on my own when I, I just can't keep on going, pop, pop, out comes God. Ah, everything will be okay. But now you can go back in your, in your little bottle and leave me alone for a while. But what the type of God that most people really object to is actually the idea that God has a claim on them, that there is a God who could rightly expect obedience or worship from them. That sort of God is much harder to stomach because that sort of God might have a say in what I do with my life. And yet, the God of Abraham and the Bible is actually that kind of God. He's a God that does bountiful good things. He rescues Lot from, from the four kings with a ridiculously small number of people. Uh, he blesses uh, Abraham with a, a place, children, a nation, and so many other blessings. But he's a God that doesn't hesitate to make some demands, some requests. A God who willingly lays claim to our allegiance. And I think if we dig below the surface, that the genie in the bottle God that we like to in our culture and, and sometimes we even like to believe in doesn't actually make sense at all. And it especially doesn't make sense if we're talking about the God who actually made the world around us. One of the ways I think we can see that is, we, is that instinctive knowledge that healthy relationships aren't, aren't just one-way streets. Imagine a friendship or a marriage where one person made demands on the other and the other never asked for anything in return. We probably call it fairly quickly and rightly so, call that a toxic relationship. That there is only one direction of and there's no reciprocation. Instead, we expect friends to expect um, to present loyalty to each express loyalty to each other, to look after each other's best interests. Similarly, a, a healthy marriage isn't just one-sided. It's about sharing life mutually with each other, promising to love one another no matter what and that's especially a promise when you have small children. Are those 3 or 4 a.m. wake-ups that Pete will soon be experiencing? That it, it can be difficult to love one another when you've had 20 minutes of sleep in the last four hours. 
but it is a promise to love each other no matter what. That it, there's expectations and reciprocal expectations that are placed on each other. So too, actually, if you're a citizen of a country, if you live in a place, there is a relationship between you and the government. As much as uh, we may not want there to be a relationship between us and the government, there is. The government provides us with all sorts of privileges and protections. And in return, we have promised to obey uh, the government's laws and act in its best interests. This is why Section 44 of our Constitution has caused so much issue for us in the last couple of years. Because if, you're, if you have members of parliament who are subject to two countries, whose best interests are they looking after? But there's something to notice in this. In, re in relationships, the greater the power imbalance that occurs, the greater the responsibility that's laid on each party. Ex the expectations you have on peers, or for that matter, a group member in a university assignment, are usually quite low, especially group members in university assignment. You know, there's no power imbalance whatsoever. You have zero expectation that they're going to do anything. You, you hope that they do. But the power imbalance between a government and a, and a subject, a citizen, is quite high. The government is expected to provide for its citizens, and in return, the citizens are expected to uphold the laws of the government. So let's apply that to um, the covenant with God. If it's to be a, a real relationship and not just a covenantal genie in a bottle that we can shine the outside of and, it pop, and out pops out a blue, a blue genie occasionally, then there's going to be expectations. And because that power imbalance is huge, the expectations are going to be incredibly high. We, and I think rightly so, expect God to act as nothing less than who he is, God. To be consistently good and powerful, protective and merciful to us. And yet, at the, and at the same time, God has every right to expect us to act in line with how he has created us to be. To be faithful to him in life, blameless before him in character. Only then can it actually be called a real relationship, a true covenant. Anything less than that is nothing more than a sham. And this is exactly why the idea of covenant is both good news for us and terrible news for us. It's great news that, that we are in, incorporated into this covenant, that God is God and we should be expecting him to be who he is, gracious and merciful. We're incorporated into that covenant um, into the family of Abraham by faith in Jesus. But at the same time, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? If the, the expectation on us is to be faithful to him in life and blameless performing in character, well, that's a big expectation. And yet that's exactly what the New Testament writers ex express. In Matthew, we see uh, Jesus uh, coming before his disciples and saying, this is the, the blood of a new covenant. In Romans, we, we hear Paul writing to the, to the Romans, Gentiles who, who aren't part of the family of Abraham. They have no biological relationship to Abraham. And yet, they are said to be grafted into the covenant. 
We'll come back to that in a, in a moment. All of that, all of all of that, um, encourage, should encourage us that we too share in God's covenant blessings. That God still promises to be our God and and for us to be His people. That it's no longer just the biological family of Abraham, but it's expanded to include people from every nation, race, and language. That the covenant that we read of here is we are part of as well. That God is still our reward, the fountain of every blessing for us. That he has promised to fulfill the deepest longings of our hearts and souls. And in the, even in the midst of suffering, he is our comfort, our refuge and our joy. And the promise of descendants? Well, I take it that promise still holds true. You and I, I, I take it that very few people who are part of God's covenant family are biological descendants from Abraham. The legacy is no longer dependent on being biological children, but rather there is a legacy in being included in a spiritual family. The promise of land. Again, it still holds but has been expanded. Jesus came to establish a spiritual kingdom that is not bound to geography, that is broader, much broader than that, that we are at home anywhere that there are people who name Jesus as Lord. And so too we've been given new names. We've been baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and that we have the name of God imprinted on our hearts. The writer uh, um, of Revelation uh, writes that there is a new stone which has been given to, to God's people, that the new name written on them. But at the same time, to share in these blessings is also to share in the expectations. That God's standard for his people is that they faithfully worship and obey him, be people of absolute integrity. Not just be good people in action, but be good people at heart. Not just about our legislation, but about our intention. We need to know first that God is completely just to require this sort of faithfulness from us. He created us to worship him above all else. To do anything less than that, to put anything else higher than him, is, to, is nothing less than treason against the king of the universe. Now, as I said at this point, it's probably right that we should feel a little bit nervous, or a lot nervous. Because that seems so far beyond reasonable how can we expect us even though you know we we intrinsically consider ourselves to be pretty good i think we all realize that if we dig down a little bit deeper than the surface scratch below uh, where we are that there's more muck than we care to admit surely god asked too much at this point and as we read on in chapter 17 and and even reflect back to to chapter 14 and 16 Abraham doesn't even last five minutes before his own faith is called into question. When God promises him that a son will be born to Sarah, what does he do? He should fall down and worship and say, this is amazing. But we're told that he laughs. He laughs a laugh of derision. And it's not one that escapes God's notice. Because God then continues and reinforces that blessing to him. If Abraham failed to be blameless, what hope then do we have? 
In all of this, we're left with them with two questions. One is, can we trust on God to come through with his covenant? But the other, I think, we instinctively know the answer to. Can we trust ourselves to meet God's standard? And in the, as we continue throughout um, Genesis, we're going to be ans- answering some of these tough questions. But in, even in this passage, in these passages, we see an inkling of that. Because just as every covenant has those blessings and expectations, so too every covenant has penalties for being broken. So let's have a look at those penalties. In 15.8, Abraham asks God, how can I know that I will gain possession of the land? In other words, how can I, how can I actually trust you? How, do, how, how can I place my faith in you? And I think we read what, ha- what happens next. And unless you're a butcher, it's kind of weird. God says, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham does that. And then without further instruction, he seems to know exactly what to do with these animals. And it's like something out of an M. Night Shyamalan movie, you know takes the cow, the goat, and the ram, and hacks them in half. And he arranges each half on, on opposite sides to the other. And he waits. And clearly he's expecting something rather specific to happen at this point. Well, Abraham here is waiting for the final part of the covenant promise. Because in those days, and we see um, some of the reflection of this in the marriage ceremony or in the marriage practices that we have a covenant was ratified in a particular manner. You cut a few animals in two and you lay them out opposite each other so that there's a path down the middle. Then the two parties, the, the king and the lord, or the, the various parties coming into the covenant, would walk through the middle of the pieces. Aren't you guys glad that you're not going to have, you know, entrails of heifer on either side of, your, of the aisle as you go down? Um, you know, it would make an absolute mess of a white dress. You know, that long trail trailing out. Well, that's just the brains over there. <laughs> you have to make sure you step over the entrails that have, just haven't quite been cut in half properly. But it emphasizes the utmost seriousness of the covenant. Because what you're effectively saying in doing this is if I break the covenant, may, may you, the, the person who hasn't broken the covenant, do to me exactly what I've just done to these animals. Split me in half and, and off you go. That's what Abraham's waiting for. He's waiting for God to show up so they can make a walk through the, the animals and in a promise to each other, emphasizing the seriousness of it. And so he waits. A few birds come along because, you know, what, what is there to, to attract a few vultures apart from some freshly cut up animals? And Abraham drives them away. But just as the sun is setting, Abraham falls into a deep sleep. And a th- thick and dreadful darkness comes over him, as we read in um, 1512. And eventually God does show up. Whether it's a dream or a waking vision, we're not told. But God shows up in the, in the form of a flaming torch. Really, realistically, a, probably a basket full of fire. 
And what happens next must have shocked Abraham to the core. Because it's not that there's a basket of flaming fire that's particularly shocking at this point. I mean, that's my inkling would be if a, if a basket of flaming fire showed up fairly much disembodied from the, from the things around it, no one's carrying it, that's, that seems pretty shocking. But what seems to shock Abram isn't that there's a flaming basket. It's that he's up in the bleachers. He's off to one side watching on. He may as well at this point be in the nosebleed stands because God passes through the pieces alone. It's like um, if you have a, a, a covenant and one of the members of, of the, the promise or one of the members of the wedding just you know, stays d- down the front of the church while the other one um, walks, walks the walk out to the car and goes off to the, to the reception. Abraham at this point is just a spectator to the covenant that is being made. And this is one of the things that uh, is so shocking about it. What God is saying is effectively, if you or I, God or Abram, break the covenant, well, it's God that will take the penalty of being split into like those animals. Abraham is rightfully stunned. He's rightfully shocked. How can this be possible? How can the one who is, has all of the power in this relationship be the one promising to take all of the punishment if there is a break of the relationship. As we see over and over again in the following chapters, there are many breaks in this relationship. How can God be trusted to keep his promise to Abram? Well, he indicates that he is willing to take the penalty for his people's inevitable unfaithfulness, for their inevitable guilt. Abraham couldn't have understood how anyone could die to take the penalty. But we can, because we know the one who did die to take the penalty. Because there's another day in history when God fulfilled his promise to Abram. There's a day when a deep and terrible darkness descended on the land, when whips and nails and spears tore into Jesus as he hung bleeding and dying on the cross. There was the one day where the only one who has fulfilled God's covenant, who is completely faithful, took the penalty for those who weren't. That in his faithfulness and blamelessness in the covenant, he, that that might be given to the ones who are sitting on the sidelines, in the bleachers, in the nosebleed stands, who believe in him. So that we may become worthy of the covenant blessings and given power to fulfill covenant expectations to be rescued from covenant penalties. In this way, and only in this way, is God our shield, our great reward. It is in Christ that we have been, that the covenant has been fulfilled, that we are God's people forever. And it is that very power that raised Jesus from the dead and the power by which he now rules over all things that enables us to fulfill the expectations of that covenant. And so too we are marked with the signs of the new covenant. The covenant that is finally completed and fulfilled in Jesus is no longer circumcision. Thank goodness for that. Because becoming part of God's people is no longer by being born into it, but it is by the new signs of the covenant in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is a sign that you are part of God's covenant. 
that you have died to sin and been raised to life in Christ. And the Lord's Supper is a sign that Christ's blood is enough to fulfill that covenant. They're the signs for us that God is ever faithful. They are the signs that by grace we are his. That we can trust that God will do what he said he will do. Let me pray. Father God, I, I thank you so much that it is by your grace, by your covenant that we can come before you. There's a covenant that we cannot enact on our own, that we cannot do by ourselves. But it's a covenant that you have done for us, that Jesus, the one who fulfilled all aspects of the covenant, has brought to us. He has fulfilled your expectations and he brings us your blessings. We pray that you would be writing that on our hearts, that new covenant, that you would be fulfilling it in us. In Jesus' name, amen.